this edition of Create the Village. Back in the 70s when everyone was heading out, no one would ever believe that 40 years later they'd be trying to come back and that they would be drawn even to new places, new developments out there in the suburbs that mimic a lot of the scale and, and feel of a traditional downtown. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Well, greetings. I want everyone to know that this is really a treat. It's certainly a treat for me, and I'm sure it will be a treat for you. We have as our guest today, Mary Means. Mary is a legend in her own right. Her work is well-known across the country. She's an award-winning community planner and innovator who has led the movement in Main Street revitalization for over four decades. And while working at the National Trust for Historic Preservation in the 70s, as shopping centers were empty in downtown, Mary saw that small towns needed tools to bring life back to historic town centers, something that we still see today, but um, this is back almost 50 years, 40 years plus. She conceived of a three-town pilot project, then led the team that took it to scale nationally. And that's why I made the statement she's a legend across the country because her work is being done and implemented across the country. Now known as Main Street America, the program provides an integrated framework to help communities transform their economies, leverage local leadership, and improve residents' quality of life. She has been dubbed the Queen of Main Street, that makes sense, by her colleagues and industry leaders. Today, Mary is a popular conference speaker and continues to help public interest clients envision and build consensus to make their communities better places to live and work. She's an award-winning innovator, practitioner, teacher, and mentor who spent her career empowering urban and rural communities to revive their old town centers, transform their local economies, and as I said earlier, generally improve the quality of life of the residents. She comes from stock that makes this feel comfortable. Her father, James Means, was an architect in Atlanta, where she grew up. And for those who have visited the little chapel at Glen Memorial on the Emory campus, you have a flavor of her father's work and of Mary's origins, as it's also where Mary's parents were wed. Deep roots. She lives in Silver Spring, Maryland with her Wife, and while she says she's semi-retired, first, don't believe it, but her latest book was just released, and she's made her way to create the village to talk about the movement she started and her latest book entitled Main Street's Comeback and How It Can Come Back Again. So Mary, again, thank you for joining us today. And before I go into any questions, did I miss anything that you would like to share with the audience that you think um, was important and I just unfortunately left out? Uh, The only thank you, Egbert. It was a very, very generous introduction. 
Um, the one thing I would add, since you are in um, Atlanta, you're in Georgia, is that Georgia has had a Main Street program since 1980, and it's one of the better ones in the country. So there are many, many towns in Georgia that are part of a network. Okay, that's great. Well, then, with that said, and we'll get into your new book in a moment, but first, just for the listeners who may not be familiar with the Main Street movement, could you provide a general overview of what the movement is, why it's so important, and finally, what has allowed the movement to be so successful? Okay. Well, it's kind of unimaginable to anyone today that in the 1970s, it was really generally, generally accepted wisdom that everyone was moving out from cities. Shopping centers were where commerce was going to be, and downtown was just uh, going to be left behind. Um, we didn't want to see that happen at the National Trust because a lot of those buildings were really important. So we set out to figure out what might work to help smaller communities in particular do something about this. And what came out of working with three towns was a ton of knowledge that was tested on the street. And we organized it all into four buckets, if you will, of actions that needed to be taking place together, not just choose one over here and wait a while on the other three. And that became known as the Main Street Approach. And um, it was our demonstration project was supposed to end in three years, and we were supposed to go away, publish some books, do a film. But it really took off. And I think it's because we sort of serendipitously called it the Main Street Project. Someone said if we called it the Downtown Revitalization Project, no one would ever have heard of it again. But it, we, we unknowingly tapped something in people's hearts that has to do with just the connection. I say everything I learned about branding was accidental in naming it that. Uh, but it, in 1980, we took what we'd learned and a film and all of that, and we worked with six states, uh, each of which had five towns. Georgia was one of those six. And uh, it went on and on, and it's grown today. Today, there are about 1,600 towns in the U.S. that are engaged in this form of Main Street revitalization using this Main Street approach. Each of them has a professional downtown Main Street manager, and it's all kind of coordinated through state offices of Main Street, and that's coordinated by Main Street America. And again, I think one of the reasons that it's taken off and stayed so relevant is that it's a there's a low threshold for entry. It's a, a concept that's, that's understandable by average people, not just the professionals. And a colleague of mine called it, it's a lot of little, lots of little. It's small projects that, that are incremental, and they add up over time. And it's not sort of putting all the eggs in one basket and then really hoping that if you build it, they will come. And then having to get over probably two generations of embarrassment after they don't. <laughs> so, so, so it's kind of it's a low-risk approach to downtown revitalization, and it really involves a lot of people. Now, that's interesting, and obviously we do a lot of community development, and oftentimes we're doing some of what you just described, which is there's a big bet <laughs> that serves as a that serves as a stimulus for additional 
um, activity. But what I like about what you said is there's no place where it cannot be applied. That's true, and I should have added that in the last 10 years probably, it's begun to be applied in sort of historic corridors in major cities, uh, the commercial corridors that probably were along old streetcar routes. Uh, Boston has 22 Main Street programs. District of Columbia has 18. They're in Chicago, uh, Texas. They're all over. Fantastic. So you, you mentioned you gave some passing reference to, from a naming standpoint, if it was called urban revitalization or uh, redevelopment plan, it would have been dead by now just in terms of language. But I think you would agree that there has been a resurgence in urban America, and particularly in the southern states, the, in the so-called Sun Belt. And in addition to this resurgence of core cities, outer suburbs or exurbs that surround those core cities are also seeing significant growth. And in fact, many of them are fabricating the old romantic, old-style downtown centers. So that's caught on. From where I'm sitting today, I know I can drive about 35 miles north to a restaurant in Suwannee, and Suwannee now has a classic, traditional downtown center with large public park, commercial district, residential living, on-street parking, and on and on and on. Thing is, this classic downtown is now about 10 years old. The city's website calls the area a vibrant, mixed-use area anchored by a 10-acre urban-style park and a town center that embodies Suwannee's vision for live-work-play. And on Zillow today, a newly constructed 3,200-square-foot home, for example, is listed at well over 450, say $480,000 or so. For those who do not know, this is considerably more than any residential purchase just five years ago. So my question for you is this. What do we have as humans that causes us to seek out and gravitate to its town centers, classic downtowns, or, more appropriately, main streets? Well, you've, you've noticed something that I find kind of amazing. Well, back in the 70s when everyone was heading out, no one would ever have believed that 40 years later they'd be trying to come back and that they would be drawn even to new places, new developments out there in the suburbs that mimic uh, a lot of the scale and, and feel of a traditional downtown. I think part of this is a human need uh, or welcoming of sense of containment. Uh, and it's more than just the scale of a pedestrian street. It's the, the sort of size and scale of the buildings, the spaces that they create, and the interest along the street with, with storefronts and various activities. People like to be together, or they did before the pandemic, and I suspect they will after the pandemic, too. And that has been noticed by, I think, a lot of developers, uh, the first being those who were building Seaside, the uh, new community in Florida, uh, which uh, started the whole new urbanism movement. And new urbanism embraced traditional architecture to a, to a great extent, and therefore that means that they also embrace the town center concept, too. But it's proven to be highly popular. Well... So so on that vein, now let's shift to your book. And I'm curious, what, did, what was it that motivated you to write the book? And what do you want readers to take from the book? 
Well, I'm going to be very, um, kind of, I guess, revealing. Um, I left the National Main Street Center and the National Trust in 1984. Um, I had taken it nationally, and I was ready to do something else. I went into consulting and had a pretty, really very successful run at that. And I had not really paid close attention to what was happening with the National Main Street Program, now Main Street America. So about two years ago, and I toyed with doing a book about it, but about two years ago, I was given an award. And at the awards luncheon, up on the screen were the statistics. It was how many buildings had been done, how much had been reinvested, how many new jobs, uh, how many new businesses. And my jaw dropped. I was just stunned at the impact of it cumulatively over the last 40 years. And it caused me to go back. I mean, like at the time, it was $76 billion in reinvestment in these communities. So I thought the B was a mistake and kind of went back to, and I started looking at it and I thought, you know, this is the cumulative impact of all of this is significant enough that it needs to be raised up and particularly needs to be raised up as we're making some critical decisions about infrastructure and all of that. So that's what first motivated it was just, wow, I really want to find out more about this and I want to raise the story of it all up. Because when you look at it cumulatively, the lots of little has become, as one person calls it, the most uh, successful economic development approach that's happened in the United States. And yet it's flown under the radar of mainstream economists and, and urbanists because it doesn't have the kind of clip the ribbon on 1,200 new jobs at the carrier plant that is mythically going to come here. <laughs> you know, uh, so that's what really motivated me to 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 start it. It was a challenge. Well, you know, that's that's interesting, and there is some level of not similarity. Yours is at a much bigger scale than what I'm getting ready to talk about. But obviously, I have been maybe threatening is a better word than promising. I've been threatening to write myself <laughs> to write a book about my experiences in community development and. Part of a trigger for me a couple of years ago, the company had its 25th anniversary celebration. And Henry Cisneros, who was the secretary of HUD in the 90s under the Clinton administration in the first term, he was in place when we did what ended up being the first holistic community development project done in the country with mixed income housing and new school and early childhood development and so on and so forth. And we created something which Henry dubbed the Atlanta model. And we had been doing it, but a lot of other people have copied it and some have even tried to claim it as their um, ideas. But Henry made a statement at the dinner. He was our keynote speaker and he said, Egbert, there are specifically 254 communities developed across the country that are using the model that you and your partners created. Wow. Back in the I had no idea. I had been for years saying, oh, and there are a number of these things done all over until Henry said that. And it became clear, you know, there's so much missing from the information out there and there's so much to that we could impart in what, from what we learned in doing this work 
And so that's why I say I've been threatening to write this book because I've been saying it for 20 years, but now as of a couple of years ago, it's now sort of come front and center that I need to do it. Well, let me, let me encourage you to not wait 40 years, which is what I did. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, the gray matter is much more present at 20 years. <laughs> uh, yeah, the recall is gone too later on, right? So, so yeah, what did you find to be your biggest challenge in writing the book? I mean, what did you have to give up, if anything, to find well, I'll, I'll tell you the, the biggest challenge. But before that, I want to say what was the greatest uh, thing you discovered in it, and one of it is there's a remarkable firm that has done economic impact studies for some 20 of the now 40 states that have Main Street programs, and they not only look at the numbers of all of it, but they phrase it and put it in ways that relate some of the people and the stories of it. Were it not for all of these studies and documentation, and there's tons of documentation on this, the book really wouldn't have been possible because I'm, I'm not able to get out to 40, 10, 40 states and all of that, <laughs> certainly not with the pandemic. So it was a treasure trove of information that had not really been put together across the board. Secondly, you wanted to, to know the biggest challenge. It was the fear of the blank page. And, and the idea that um, I was going to have to eat the whole elephant right now. You know? <laughs> so one of the ways I overcame the blank page, because I started out and I'd start to write and then I would freeze up, is I um, discovered that some writing teachers actually say, don't use an outline, just start writing. And just start writing and get it out and that will overcome the blank page problem. Because the book is going to come out of revisions. And it's going to take shape out of revisions. And once you've got something to work with, in effect, the structure will reveal itself to you. And that's exactly what happened. What's in print now is the fifth revision. The fifth one was caused by coronavirus arriving just as I was about to start the chapter on the incredibly wonderful future of Main Street. <laughs> and it was like... Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it'll be it'll be rediscovered, but that's some very good insight, Mary, because I'm struggling as well. I I unfortunately have probably written an outline 15 different times. So, so I am going to take you up on that because that sounds It it just broke it loose. It really did. Okay, so you know, you know there's a natural tension. You're talking to being interviewed by a developer and there's a natural tension between developers and preservationists right and by the nature of their work developers especially in urban settings develop or redevelop on land that has a long-standing purpose and almost exclusively the land consists of existing buildings commercial spaces and some residential dwellings and often not always but often preservationists will argue that the value, that's economic and social value, that is being created is too costly. My question for you is about zeal. And maybe the answer is rooted in your response to my earlier question about the drive we all have to find community space. But I will say I'm often quoted as saying, unconstrained, inflexible preservation is a huge problem. An unbridled development is a huge problem. 
and finding the place in the middle where you're doing the right amount of both is really what the work is all about, is finding a place where you can be practical yet respect the tradition, history, and so on, and preserve it. So can you explain for listeners the drive that goes into preventing a building, a dilapidated building, for example, from coming down long after its practical, useful life has been passed and no viable economic plan can save the building? That may be a setup. (laughs) Well, I think there are... um there are advocates in preservation that unquestionably feel deeply attached to the the very notion of preserving the past. The historic preservation movement's roots are, I want to say, curatorial, uh, with with an emphasis on what it looks like, architectural style and importance and all of that. And we've unfortunately, in some ways, created an ethos among many preservation folks that accurate restoration and treating it as though it is an object in a museum, in a museum setting, uh, is, is what preservation is all about. But that's rapidly been fading, I think, as we've begun to, first of all, development has changed a lot. We're no longer doing the kind of broad urban renewal that was ignoring the value of and, and usefulness of, of buildings in the path, and that's changed a lot over the last few years, uh, last decades. But I think the other part is is that many preservationists now have a broader sense of it. It's been said that the Main Street program and the Main Street approach kind of really shifted mm-hmm. preservation away from this curatorial focus to one of more practicality. These buildings have to earn their keep. They're not going to be put in a museum. They have to find a use that works in today's times. So we have to lighten up. And we have to also acknowledge that new development is needed in those settings. I think one of the things that's truly helped is um, designers and developers have become more attuned to contextual development so that we no longer have to fear that the canvas is going to be completely obliterated and they're going to start with something absolutely hideous. So how did how did you find the way to blend economic development with preservation? I mean, was there anything that specific that got you into that? Well, I think we realized in the 70s um, that I was running a regional office of the National Trust, and we were my job was to go out and help preservation organizations form. We were in the last days of the big categorical grants, so that. Um, the big the big urban renewal project. So a lot was coming down, and there were very few organizations. But as I got around, I could see that this, I was in the Midwest, and they're practical people. And as far as they were concerned, these buildings weren't historic. They were just old. And, and we were, you know, come on, that's for people in Charleston or Boston. It's not for us here in Indiana. So I realized we really needed to have some models. And I think one of the key things was I knew we were going to have to prove that it could work. So from the very first day working in those three towns, we took the before photographs of everything so that we then had them for the after photographs. We also started measuring a number of, tracking a number of indicators so that we could see what the impact had been. The economic monitoring system that we set up, which was simple, we wanted it to have, wanted it to be simple so it would be easy to conduct, easy to gather the data 
it's still being used. So there's over 40 years of information now that absolutely proves, undoubtedly, that this approach works from an economic standpoint. So I guess we've, we've really made the case that the two can live hand in hand with that kind of respect that I think you were implying was needed between the two factions, I'll call them, or perspectives. Excellent. Okay, so last question. And just as a, by way of information, in, in May of 2020, we had as guests Jeannie Birch and Susan Wachter. I, don't, I assume you know both ladies from the Penn Institute for Urban Research. And uh, they were guests on Create the Village. And I've known Jeannie and Susan for many years. I sat on the Penn IUR board and served as its chairman for a number of those years, probably about 12 or so years. And just as the COVID-19 pandemic was taking hold, I asked them to share their views about anticipated changes to cities and urban life. We're now nearly a year into the pandemic and not sure there's certain end in sight. Um, we have it what seems like uh, we've found a way to just live with the pandemic. It's here. We're talking on Zoom every day, just as we are doing today. When we're out in public, we're socially distancing. The employees in my company and a whole lot of other companies are just functioning in a different way than they were 12 to 15 months ago. And much of the surprise, much to the surprise of many uh, people in the real estate industry in particular, things are residential real estate is actually doing well. So put on your crystal ball for us and forecast in answering this question. Do you anticipate ex-urban and rural communities will see a population and economic boon because of the pandemic? If so, why? And if so, what will this mean for our social dynamics? Will urban versus rural take on a whole new meaning than it has in the past? Ooh, what a question. Yeah, now obviously everybody is sort of pondering this. Yeah, well, I'm going to throw in another variable that's, beyond, that's also part of like this, what we've been going through this last year. George Floyd's killing and the response of the country following that, I think, revealed that a younger generation is much more attuned to a multicultural world and living in a multicultural world. So that's a, that's a factor in this that I think is, gonna, is, is already changing the social dynamic. Already we've been seeing an increase in interest on the part of those who are fortunate enough to be able to work remotely. Uh, their jobs uh, and their employers fit that. We've seen a, a, a real surge in interest in some small communities where the cost of living is lower, where it's safer because there are not so many people around, of people relocating from Chicago, New York, and other places. Many of these communities are ones that already were beginning to get what I'd call the pre-retiree. The eastern shore of Maryland, for instance, is really feeling the impact because there have been people from the Washington, Baltimore, Washington area able to kind of come in once or twice a week from that distance and, and get their place in Easton or St. Michael's. We're also seeing it in communities that are near great concentrations of amenities, such as near national parks um, or, or near the seashore, 
where people can work. But the main thing is there has to be broadband Internet access to make this possible at all. Some really great leaders have, for instance, made sure that broadband Internet is available entirely across the state of Iowa. I looked at a map the other day of Georgia, and the entire southwest quadrant of Georgia lacks high-speed Internet. So when we talk about investing in infrastructure, we need to look at what the Rural Electrification Act and that part of the New Deal did for bringing electric power to farms um, and to people in rural areas. Right now, there's a very uneven playing field that partly is can be attributed to this lack of broadband. I do think socially, as the new folks arrive, there are always the tensions between the been here's and the come here's, and it's going to take some adjustment on the on the part of both to do that. But I remember um, there's a wonderful planner named Bill Morrish who wrote a book called Planning to Stay. It's one of the great small books in planning, and it has to do with a mindset that happens when you decide that this is where you're going to stay, this is where you're going to be. And you then get engaged in a level that you might not have before. And I think that's going to be part of the dynamic that will ultimately work out some of these social dynamic kinks between the been here's and the come here's. That's, that's insightful. As usual, Mary, you, you gave me a perspective and a way of looking at it that I didn't when I was asking the question. And that's, that makes sense. It actually is intuitive. Obviously, things always seem obvious after they, after you hear it. <laughs> but now that, no, that, that I feel like we're already living through seeing some of that take place. This was excellent. I absolutely appreciate your time. This is insightful for the listeners, I'm sure. It was thrilling for me and a pleasure to share this time with you. Um, let, well, I want I want to I want to really encourage you to write that book because <laughs> okay. I suspect that what you have what you started is something that really needs to be raised up because there's going to be a lot more development and we need to be doing it as well as you've been doing it. Well, thank you very much. Um, I will take you up on that. I will I will write that. I may call when I'm seeing them if I'm feeling blank page. Um, syndrome, me. I'll call you. Mary, thank you very, very much. Again, this was my pleasure. You're very welcome, and it's been a joy to meet you. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group. Copyright The Integral Group.